Welcome to the show where three friends rate, debate, and investigate the films you'll love to see and hate to see. This is You'll Love to See It. And welcome back to another episode of You Love to See It, starring my two friends, Eric Zhu and Caleb Brunman. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing swell, Zach. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You know, just getting through the Friday afternoon to the Friday nights where I can enjoy my nights. But I'm enjoying this. I made it sound like I didn't want to be here, but I do want to be here. I mean, if you don't want to be here, are the Phillies playing right now? They're not. They are 1-0, though. They play tomorrow. I'll be watching again. How are the Angels? They win? They won on opening day for the first time. In like- wow. Yeah. Can't say that about the Dodgers. No. <laughs> no. Sorry, Sam. Uh, shout out to Sam Zukin. Um, and then, Eric, are you a Mariners fan? I mean, not so really. Like a Mariners like- fan? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're from Seattle. That's the only reason I'm asking, you know. Okay. Well, you're, you're a Mariners fan in spirit. That's about it. But I don't even know if they played or won or lost. So probably lost because it's the Mariners. Um, either way. Hello, guys. Uh, let's do what this. What is a Mariner? What? What's a Mariner? What's a Mariner? Thank you very much. It's like a, like a sailor, right? Yeah. Why are they the same team multiple times? What? Playing the same team today. They, they do that. They do that in baseball. They play series. Oh, that's so boring. Boring. Well, no. Otherwise, they'd be traveling. They have a hundred and something games. They'd be traveling all around the country nonstop. So, yeah. But this is not a baseball podcast. Um, I I yeah. bet I could do a great baseball podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, know? well, when uh, uh, when I start one, you'll be on. Yeah. Hit one. That's a hit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's do this. So this week we're going to be reviewing the newly released uh, Best Picture nominee, The Father, followed by our final Coen Brothers film, Inside Lewin Davis. But before that, we have an intro question, which is now that we have gone through a considerable portion. Actually, I don't Is it, Did we even go through half of their films? Uh-huh. To be almost half. We went through a third. Yeah, we went wow. through a third. That's crazy. They have many more movies out there. Um, but now that we've gone through and um, to each his own cinema, then we watched, yeah. Then we watched six out of twenty. Okay. Well but generally of their films, we watched a third. In spirit of the Cohen brothers, we will uh we'll be the question this week will be. Of the Coen Brothers films that we did not review, which one is your favorite? I'll start with Caleb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is why you guys have to pay to watch the the video live stream because you just missed uh, an exquisite moment. Anyway, I'll begin with a serious man. Um... I think 
this was the first Coen Brothers movie that whose style I really felt myself vibing with. Uh, I had seen Fargo before, which I thought was similar quality, but it wasn't necessarily my uh, my my style. I'd also seen Burn After Reading, which I just did not connect <laughs> with at all. But now that I'm more familiar with the Coens, uh, there's a chance that I would appreciate it more on a revisit. Anyway, uh, A Serious Man, I think, was just had this great uh, had had this you know had the classic Coens. This guy is just running into obstacles and failure at every turn, trying to dig himself out of a hole that he inevitably cannot escape. Uh, but the way they do it, uh, through Michael Stuhlbarg's performance, uh, as well as the specific brand of humor, the, the Jewish humor. And I think there's a lot of repetition in this movie, more than most of their movies, uh, which I think really... I don't know, just get to Cy Abelman. Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um yeah, I think it's it's a mostly lighthearted affair too, which yeah, even even in spite of uh you know the the literal situation in the movie. Uh, and that's something to appreciate as well. And I don't know, I for some reason I I look back and I compared this movie to to Uncut Gems. So nothing can't go wrong when when you compare it to a movie like that. Sure. I think I don't I actually find the ending of a serious man like really powerful. Can I ask you Caleb um where would this if you can I don't know if you'll know but like of the Coen brother films you've seen and the ones we've done on the podcast, whatever, where does a serious man fit in the rankings? Is it towards the top? Like, do you have an exact position or is it just maybe towards the top? I've seen 10 and I would put it at number four. Four. Okay. Okay. Where, what were the other, can I, can I, I'm just in my, for my inquisitive mind, what were the other three? Well, in no order, because you'll have to stay tuned. Uh, we have already reviewed Blood Simple and The Man Who Wasn't There. And maybe sneaking into the top three, we got Inside Lewin Davis. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Where does it no, land? Maybe. I know I know exactly where it lands. The serious man, I'll... top tier. Top tier. I I think it's their funniest movie by far. Like when really? when he's going, I did not order Santana Braxis. That's like I like I'm so bad at remembering lines and there are so many things that have just like lodged themselves in my brain from that movie. Dude, I have no, okay, just quick tangent. I forgot the dentist's name or his like dream of like, oh, oh my God, the fucking, the blackmail, the Korean kid who's blackmailing him for the grade. I, oh my God. Quick tangent, dude, I don't, I, I admire people who can remember movie lines because I always wanted to be that guy that could just whip out movie lines. I. Dude, I can't. Like, I don't. I don't. I don't remember any. I have such what? a question for you. I have such a good question. For me? Yeah. What? What is grief? But love persevering. I just did it to you. I just. I just quoted the best line of dialogue of TV and movie history. I. I don't even know what that's from. Zach, what would you say if I told you that now we're just here to be memories for our kids? Okay, I know. I know what that is. Okay. 
but I don't know what Eric's was. And every single screenwriter in the world just collectively said, fuck. <laughs> All right, Eric, what is your favorite Coen <laughs> Brothers film that we did not uh, talk about? Um, it would be a serious man, but the next on my list is going to have to be Fargo. Um, Fargo is set in Minnesota and it is about William H. Macy's Jerry. And I think this one, I think of most in connection to Blood Simple in which man starts some sort of crime plot. In this case, he is trying to like coordinate some sort of kidnapping of his wife. Things go terribly wrong. There's some murderous hijinks um, and yeah, everything just starts to fall apart and it stars Francis McDormand as a police officer. Um, I feel like this was one of their big hits. I want to say Francis McDormand won an Oscar for it. And obviously there's the spinoff TV show. Um, but I think more than anything, this is in terms of like chronologically for Coen Brothers movies, this is the first one that I think aesthetically follows something that I really enjoy. There's obviously that very famous shot of um the park like the park this like snowy parking lot like shot from like up above it's got like nice color palettes which i don't normally associate with the cohen's in terms of my personal taste um not one that emotionally connects with me but one that i do enjoy watching I, I don't know how I haven't seen it yet. I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. I don't, I just haven't gotten around to it. They also all have those like Midwestern accents. Like, so where does, um, Minnesota. How, many, how many Coen Brother film have you, films have you seen? 14. And where does, where does that one rank? Would you say? That and the serious man are like together at like number four. Okay. And you're, well, we don't need to spoil it. I mean, in 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 some order, what are your top three? No particular order. <laughs> Deja vu. The blood, the blood simple is in there. The man who wasn't there is in there. And full circle. Didn't side you and Levis. My oh, manager. okay. Wow. Interesting. I didn't realize you guys would end up having the same. We don't know the order, but uh, same top no, three. No order we don't know i'll say i'll say what my top three is because it's actually different but i also haven't seen all theirs um i've only seen two other coen brother films i i don't know how i haven't gotten to fargo i don't know how i haven't gotten to no country for old men um so the only ones i've seen are true grit and the big lebowski and true grit i honestly have not seen in a long time i saw it when it came out in 2010 so i was literally 10 years old um so it's been a long time um yeah, my father took me to that movie and I was like, I didn't even know who the Coen brothers were. Um, so I'll talk about The Big Lembowski because I, it sounds like I hate the film. I really enjoy The Big Lembowski and I feel like on a rewatch, it's, it'll be one that uh, like will go up for me. I mean, also there's just so many connections between me and The Big Lembowski. We both love white Russians, you know, <laughs> we're both uh, we're both nicknamed the dude. Like it's just perfect in every way. Um, I I really enjoyed this film. It's like very out there, and that's why I feel like, especially watching um, Raising Arizona and knowing how much I loved it, 
I feel like I would appreciate the Big Lebowski more. And after getting more experience with Coen Brothers films, I, I just, I'm really intrigued to watch it again because I love Jeff Bridges, who was also in um, the other film, True Grit. Um, and John Goodman always kills it in his roles in Coen Brothers films. So, and yeah, uh oh, that face doesn't look like you agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I I'm know, sure we'll talk. We're gonna I talk about him. Sort of obnoxious. You're not I the only one who really. thought that. As someone who also, I don't know. I don't find many things obnoxious. When I first watched that film, even I found it obnoxious, which is saying something. But I think on a rewatch, it has potential, and that, that might be a very soon rewatch because I kind of have this weird inclination to watch it. Before we move on, I will say that in my no particular order, my top three um, Coen Brothers films is pretty much the same as you, same as y'all, but it would be in no particular order, Raising Arizona, Inside Lewin Davis, and The Man Who Wasn't There. Um, right underneath it at number four would be Blood Simple. I just really love Raising Arizona, so. Hell yeah. You know, Hell I guess that's yeah. a pretty... Uh, and then I know which one we probably all have at the bottom, but that's a different story. Um, which one do we all have at the bottom? Oh, mine. Well, my one is Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, oh, dude, I've you've you've ranted about that film to me before, Eric. <laughs> you were like, "This is a terrible film." And then right above, in thirteenth place, is The Big Lebowski. Oh wow, you have Bart. You have Barton Fink above Big Lebowski. I have Barton Fink in eleventh. Number twelve is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A boring mm-hmm. movie in every sense of the word. <laughs> Caleb, Zach, I don't think you know which which Cohen's movie is at the bottom of my list. Honestly, it might be Raising Arizona, and I wouldn't be surprised. No, no, I don't know which one it is. What is it? Snow Country for Old Men. Yeah, it's yeah. Really? Snow Country. Can I ask a question? Is that one of those movies that's like really like overhyped? Like, do you think it's just a very overhyped film, or is it just like you don't personally connect with it? Because people love No Country for All Men, and it's their most popular movie. I would lean towards the former. That it's. Okay. I, I don't think it was a matter of connection. Where something like Burn After Reading, I think for me was a matter of connection. This I just I, I don't I don't understand. Burn After Reading is just like such a romp, you know, just like a romp. It's a romp. Huh. Like Brad Pitt in his little workout outfit. Yes. I'm also interested to see Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar is pretty fun. Sort of same deal with Burn After Reading. Um, that has a great sequence with Channing Tatum and a group of other people in sailor outfits. Great stuff. No Country for Old Men? I don't know. We almost went an entire section without it. I was about to like be really proud of us that we managed to avoid even mentioning it. <laughs> Wait, why does on there, a real quick tangent, why on there letterbox to say scarface are they writing are they making a new scarface film where if you go to joel cohen and then you go writer all films is writer it says scarface at the bottom yeah of course is this the luga guadagnino star scarface yeah yeah maybe he's maybe he's writing something for it writing part of it interesting all right well Well, let's what would you say Oh, yeah, he and, yeah, the Coen brothers are writing that with some other people. Mm, interesting. Interesting. When is their next film? 
this year. Which is the tragedy of Macbeth. But where is Ethan? Oh, oh yeah, yes. but it's only Joel. It's only Joel, and I think it's an A twenty four production. Oh, okay, interesting. So we no. will be re- we'll be reviewing that for sure. Um, all right, let's let's get to our films because I feel like this, we're gonna we're gonna be spending a lot of time talking about these two today. So, with no further ado, Caleb, could you introduce the father? The father follows Anthony Hopkins's Anthony, uh, an old man whose mind doesn't work like it used to. And now uh, he has to contend with shifting memories, uh, his daughter moving away or not moving away, but probably moving away. Uh, the potential to live in a, a nursing home unless he can uh, succeed with it with an in-home carer. And all the time we are basically inside of his incredibly subjective mind trying to decipher what is real and what is not uh, as he slowly, not so slowly, falls apart uh, from the inside out. Yeah. What did Zach? What did you think of the movie? Well, that's a good way to get into it. Um, <laughs> I I'll be honest. This was hard for me to watch. Um, I wrote that in my letterbox review briefly. I have an uncle who suffers from dementia that. Um, you know, is a very close part of my family. And, you know, I went and actually stayed with him and my aunt when I was touring colleges a few years ago in New York. And it was so, so heartbreaking to see someone who was at one point so lively to I mean, we would, we would sit at dinner and he would ask me the same questions. He would forget I was there and get scared. Like, it's just, I talked to my mom about this today. Cause I was like, mom, I got to recommend you this movie. But at the same time, I don't think you should ever watch it because <laughs> it hits hard. And I have a history in my family. My great grandfather also, or great grandmother also dealt with dementia and it's it's just such a to me terrifying such a terrifying thing um and i remember that this was part of the reason i became so uncomfortable watching dick johnson is dead for similar reasons and i i know i expressed an uncomfortability with that i didn't get that same sense of uncomfortability here i more just was just heartbroken at some of the scenes and really to be completely transparent i mean i was tearing up at some of the scenes i mean it was i think are are there some are there some issues with the film yeah do i think this film was very very successful in bringing to life a very really tragic thing i think it was and i i really enjoyed this and i think i enjoyed it because it it honestly I don't know. It made me feel those emotions. And I mean, I can, I can just recall several moments where um, the daughter, Anne is, you know, watching her father, Anthony, 
go through something um, and freak out or, or the ones that hit me the most were towards the end when Anthony, there were a few times where he broke down crying and I mean, it just like you, there was a very, there was a scene where uh, Anthony was being slapped and he started breaking down on the couch and his daughter came in and console him. And then, you know, like it's hard, you know, what's really happening, you know, there's, there's a lot of messing with time, messing with reality and, and stuff. And like, did he get slapped actually like what's going on? And I guess to me, and we can talk about this um, because of the ending, I almost saw some of the things as abuse coming from the, the, the nursing staff possibly. Uh, I'm not really sure we could talk more about that, but either way, I should just get to the point. So that, that scene in particular, seeing him crying and it, it, it just felt so vulnerable. I mean, he was really crying like a, like a, like a baby, like towards the end, there was like this almost childlike innocence quality to him. And it was, I don't know, it was heartbreaking. Yes. In, in a word. Yes. Um, I don't know the thing that the, the thing that I'm grappling with is trying to understand how I like this movie so much when uh, if you break it down, it really is a one trick pony. Uh, it's he, these guys are, ha- or he's, he's having a, a normal, natural conversation. Somebody leaves the frame or leaves the room and then a different person at least to him returns and then you're kind of you know the the rugs pulled out from you you uh you and you have to you know recontextualize what's what's happening and this happens i don't know maybe a dozen times in in the movie that he's just having conversation so the person he with whom he's speaking leaves somebody else returns and yet it, it it works it works just about every time uh so i think even though it really has one trick to offer that trick is powerful and it's employed effectively at the right times with the right people uh to catch you off guard and then to kind of dig into you emotionally so i think that i it's like i can't believe it worked so well but but it did i don't know if you guys felt similarly or if you ever felt graded by this repetition yeah i agree i think it's it's even more than just someone leaving the frame and then them coming back as a different person i I think it's slightly more complicated than that i've been trying to figure out exactly what it is but i mean it also has to do with the way that he's employing space like like when this person comes back it's not just that it's a different person it's that the angles in which he like zeller is like displaying all the rooms and spaces that anthony hopkins is in are shifting in a way that are i I can't think of an example off the top of my head but are are more disorienting than um you would normally expect from traditional continuity and i i think the way he messes with time is more more complicated and naughtier than um I guess not even that meets the eye. It's 
I don't know. I don't know exactly how he did it and how he decided to construct it, but I think it almost is just supposed to be unconstructible, and that becomes very clear very quickly. Um, I I think this movie stands out to me as a point of view from this type of story that we never get to see. Um, like if we talk about Dick Johnson is dead, Dick Johnson is dead is sort of, it's not traditional, but at a certain point it does turn into the um, Kirsten Johnson watching her father slowly lose his mental faculties. And you see other stuff like, um, I think Julianne Moore's um, Oscar winning performance in I think Still Alice or like My- Michael Hanukkah's Amore, which is not specifically about Alzheimer's, but about just like degradation, like the physical degradation and mental degradation that comes with age. It's all very, uh, it, I don't know, it's, it's the like the sl- watching slow decay, whereas this movie is very concentrated, very subjective from the entirely opposite point of view. And I think it's all the better for it. It feels really fresh. Um, I also think this is a movie that for, uh, well, for backstory, this is adapted from a th- like a play written by Zeller. And I think we've seen a lot of um, play adaptations this year, like Hamilton could count, um, Bob Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, um, definitely missing a couple more. There's that one, like the president one, shoot what's it called what the constitution means to me like we've seen a lot of these and this is the first one that strikes me as very cinematic and and like that really ties back to the formal gambit but like you see this movie made and you're like oh I, I totally see why they made this into a movie um and I yeah I just think it's incredibly effective and I don't know it feels genuinely fresh yeah, I want, I want to touch on two points, one by Eric and one by Caleb. Eric, I think you're spot on. Um, we talked about this when we were reviewing One Night in Miami. I think Caleb brought up this point where he said, what is this ad? Like, what, what is this being in a movie ad? You know, when, when something's a play and designed as a play, like, it already has a certain feel to it that maybe only being in a play setting can allow it to have and there's a and then you can tell through a film like one night in miami that i don't feel like it translated as well to the screen from the stage where this film i feel like like you said was perfect in that sense you know i'm not going to say perfect but like I think it translated extremely well. And I think more was added than taken away compared to something like One Night in Miami being adapted from the stage. Um, that was definitely in my mind. And I, and I still liked how it had a very play-like feel in some sense. I liked like the, just like the set and you know, you're, you feel like you're all in one room for most of the movie. And then it's like, you're at, you know, and then like they play with that fact of the similar flats and then the eventual nursing home and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I want to touch on what Caleb said, which is the, the, the you know, the, the one trick pony 
and why it works. I don't have an answer either, but it did work. And I almost feel like, you know, maybe I, this, I, 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 lo- I love making comparisons and sometimes they're unfair, but I think about other films that mess with time. And I know I'm guilty of watching a lot of Nolan movies that mess with time. And I'm not going to necessarily criticize that, but I want to also touch on more of a recent film, which was I'm thinking of ending things. And I know it's completely different in, in, in its concept, but something about the way time was played with in this film just was so much more believable, so much more, it was smoother. It was, not that it wasn't jarring. I just felt like it did it right. And maybe it's because it didn't try to get too complex with it. I, you know, I don't know. We could dissect that more. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. I think one scene in particular that did it for me when I was like, you know what, like this might, like I, I, I'm into this about middle of the movie when Anthony comes in for dinner and Anne and her husband are sitting down for dinner and her husband's whispering, like you need to put him in a nursing home, blah, 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 blah. You see the scene unfold her leave to the kitchen. Uh, the husband talk with Anthony while he's drinking wine and then Anthony leaves to go to the kitchen and, and the scene like resets. It's almost like a jack in the box going back in the box. And he walks in again. And it's like this intense sense of deja vu while you're watching. Like, I've been here before. And that looping, that, that seamless loop to me really was like, it did it. I don't know how. I don't know why it worked so well. But it, it, it did something for me that perhaps other films that mess with time don't do and it just made it seem believable and seamless yeah i think it has to do somewhat with the fact that it's so concise like generally like the the events of this movie occur in i don't know most of it other than probably the last 10 minutes when we find out he's in the nursing home most of it occurs within the span of i want to say like a couple days at least to the mind of Anthony Hopkins. And every time we see something happen, we have a general sense of what we think is going on. So we it always feels like we have context that we eventually find out isn't true. But once we come to know that we still have this general idea of these ideas and situations that keep coming up. So even when the time is looping, it's never like it never feels like we don't have a foundation. More so this feeling of being lost and not being sure out of all of these things, what is really happening? And I think that really helps. I think that really helps this movie. Whereas like, I think, I think I did see someone on Letterboxd call this Kaufman-esque, which I, I don't, I don't really feel. Um, I feel like Kaufman has more affectations to his surrealism or not, but I, I guess in terms of- I don't, I don't really see that either. Um, I don't know, that movie more is more, like within the mind in the sense that he has created like this entire world, which I feel like is very different from what this movie is trying to do. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that this is so contained and so uh, assured, I, I, f- I find it very assured, um, is what makes it work so well and do all the all the things that you just very just said very well i think there could be some 
Kaufman comparisons here. Uh, I think the the effect of the time manipulation is a huge selling point here, and and I've when when time seems to shift dramatically from one scene to the next, or even in the middle of a scene based on new information that we discover, it's kind of like a, a punch to the gut. And I guess within the fabric of the story itself, maybe it's harder to connect directly to Coffin, but I think that feeling that you experience in this movie is similar to some feelings that Kaufman produces, uh, like in Synecdoche when, when you know one scene later Caden is like tw- 20 years older you it just it pulls you out for a second and and just rearranges your mind for you before you know dragging you back in uh which uh is a is a special feeling that i think that i think s- cinema in particular captures which i comes back to our point of how this was a a superior theatrical adaptation because it plays to the strengths of cinema. Although I think this would be great to see on a stage too, and I I can totally uh, imagine the a, a similar similarly powerful effect where somebody walks off stage and then a different person walks back on, especially that first time. I, I can imagine that that the audience would be quite uh, surprised and and excited at that yeah I think to me the most impressive thing is not just the effect of the time but that this movie is able to manipulate time so naughtily I feel like that's a terrible not like naughtily like k-n-o-t-t-i-l-y like, <laughs> I knew what you so meant <laughs> in the way it's messing with time but it man just to always feel grounded in like a very very clear reality and that's such a hard thing to do. I, off the top of my head, I can think of very few filmmakers who are able to do something as, like, I feel like surreal isn't the right word for this, but have that sort of surreal touch and play with time while making the movie feel so, yeah, feel so grounded, feel so, feel like it exists in the real world. Um, closest corollary would be a Pong to bring up a name I'm bringing too much recently but that's very different um I I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like what Zeller does with time in this movie and the way it feels I, I think you know for me what 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 cemented it was um I think with a lot of these films you know, maybe that's too generic of a statement but I feel like it can be ruined or it can go stale, especially in how it treats its ending. And I felt very, very satisfied by how this film decided to wrap up. Um, I didn't feel too cliche. I think I knew what was coming in some regard, but I, I, I it felt, I don't know. What, do you, what was your guys' opinion? I, maybe it didn't form a big one in your head, but do you think... You know, do you think the ending kept the film high? Do you think it sold it short? What do you What do you think? Yeah, I was I was wondering how this movie was going to end, and hoping that it wouldn't, you know, pull off the same trick too many times and run out of steam and then kind of fizzle out. Uh, fortunately, I thought the ending was 
very appropriate. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily demolished by it as I think is the intention, but uh, it definitely was the right choice, I think. And I mean, yeah, to, to see Anthony Hopkins ask for his mother, uh, very similar to the mole agent, um, <laughs> which may be, which may be, uh, eliminated some of the emotional potential there, but, uh, no, it was, it was certainly moving. And you know, normally I don't like when movies pan off of a character or characters and, and onto the scenery, I usually am more invested in, in the people than the nature, but I think it was it was a nice touch because we had been with purely people this whole time. Uh, I think it was a nice touch to remind you that there is more out there, that there is more than just what was going on in his mind. And also maybe on a through through a sadder perspective, kind of just showing that that he's he's gone now like he we're moving off of him finally because he is completely no longer with us yeah i think um getting more grounded and more objective at the end was was the correct choice i think ultimately the the danger that comes with this movie is that it becomes too much of a nolan movie it becomes a like a mystery box movie where the point of the movie is like a game and you're trying to puzzle out what really happened and in what order. And do you think it, do you think it does get like, do you think it does reach that point where it becomes too much like a puzzle or do you think it, it stays away from that? Um, I think for the most part, it, it's successful. I think grounding it at the end is part of that. Like having there be very little ambiguity at the end really, um, I don't know, really, really sells that 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 is not the point, but it is one of the inherent dangers in doing a movie like this. Um, and, oh, I totally just lost my train of thought. Yeah, I, I don't think it has that mystery box feel, um, even though that was something I grappled with in the movie, like the danger of having the conceit be more important than the like then the internalization of the character. I want to hit two more topics before we wrap up. Um, one is going to be the Oscars, but the first one I'd rather, I want to talk about as a precursor because it plays into the three Oscar nominations in terms of um, the ones I was focusing on as actress in a supporting role for Olivia Coleman, actor in a leading role for Anthony Hopkins, and then the best picture nomination. Um, before that, I want to ask who gave the better performance and which one did you feel like you connected with more, uh, Anthony Hopkins or Olivia Coleman? I'm not going to lie. I thought the performances were a little overhyped in this movie. Okay. Uh, if you had a I mean, pick, I do you think, think one... performances really harken back to this movie's theatrical roots. Like Hopkins, I think is very, like a very stately performer, which is not a terrible thing. Like, there are some powerful moments. Like he gets his big Oscar moment at the end when he's asking for his mother, but I don't know. I never, I don't know. I, I just didn't really 
I just didn't really feel like I was, he seemed like a real human, I guess. He didn't give me anything that reminded me of, um, to make a comparison with another movie we talked about, like, like Dick Johnson is dead. Um, like there's no, like, he didn't like seem as like real warm like personality that is easy to connect to um this is obviously a much more this is obviously a much different movie in terms of who the central character suffering from dementia is and it's a very different movie in terms of father-daughter relationships but i i definitely felt a remove from uh anthony hopkins um less so from olivia coleman um she definitely has more going on in terms of her character, even though this is definitely a movie centered on Anthony Hopkins. I mean, she is the one who is watching her father. She is the one who is grappling with what may or may not be um, a bad marriage, which is, I guess is not a thing anymore, who is moving to Paris, who is trying to find these uh, caretakers for her father. And um, also like reliving past trauma in the same time. And I, I feel like I got more out of her desperation and frustration than I did out of Hopkins. Caleb? Yeah, I think, I think it's it's hard to ask who is the best and who did you connect with most. I think that's well for for who for who is the best, I think that that's a tough question because Hopkins just has a lot more to do uh, and a lot more range to explore. I think that Coleman's kind of cornered into this meek, uh, desperate, uh, helpless character and doesn't have a lot of room, uh, given that the time uh, constraints in the movie, given the the plot and and the space like that and how she is kind of acting on behalf of Anthony. She doesn't ever really get the chance to escape that very narrow pocket, uh, which she does play well, but, you know, is, is only a fraction, tiny fraction of, of the human experience that uh, Anthony gets to play. As far as who, who did you connect with more, I think this is just going to be super subjective and especially based on age. Um, I think in my life right now, it's easier for me to connect with uh, Coleman's character. Uh, but if you are older, I, I would imagine that uh, it would be easier to see yourself uh, reflected in, in Hopkins' performance. So let me ask you guys this. Um, I know we're going to have a whole episode talking about this eventually, but if you had to give your opinion right now with what you've seen, um, just kind of going through those three awards for Oscar nominations, um, Olivia Coleman, uh, do you think she has a chance to win at all? I mean, she's up against Amanda. Uh, Amanda, Eric, you're gonna have to tell me it's these names. Up against it Amanda Seyfried, Glenn Is it Close. Andrew Day and Jodie Foster? No, uh, Maria Baklova. Oh, Maria Baklova. Uh, and you... You Jung-yun. Jung yeah. Um, so Borat, Hillbilly Elegy, The Father, Mank, and Minari. I've seen every one of those films except for Hillbilly Elegy. Um, um, I have no clue what's going on in that race. I feel like Maria Bakalova is the front runner. 
Definitely a, a lot of hype. I mean, we're going to talk about this. More I think it's either Bakalova or Seifred. You don't or, think? It's between Bakalova, Seifred, and Glenn Close as the front. If you, if you were going to pick, well, we don't need to talk about that now. But do you? I mean, what do you think? How do you think her performance fits up there with those? Yeah, I mean, it's deserving of the spot. Um, I I don't know what my favorite one would be. You can say no. You can save your favorite one. You we we can save yeah. that for the future. Um, but yeah, I don't know if Caleb really has an opinion either. Um, I, I was just curious, you know. And then for actor in a leading role, uh, Gary Oldman, Manx, Stephen Yoon for Minari, uh, and then Chadwick Boseman, and then Riz Ahmed, um, and then Anthony Hopkins. Um, I mean, honestly, yeah, I haven't seen Sound of Metal or. I, yeah, I don't want to have to speak the gospel here, but if they were, if they were truly brave, they would have nominated Jude Law for the nest, or Delroy Lindo. I, I think both of those performances. You're, are you're not a fan of these nominations. No, those are great nominations. This is just a packed field this year, and I personally don't think Gary Oldman is in the top of my performances of this year. Yeah, and then it is nominated for Best Picture along with many other films. Um, I don't need to list off all of them, but uh, we've talked about pretty much everyone on this podcast. Um, I was talking with you, Eric, earlier, and you said, I mean, there's very low chance that this film actually wins, but you would say, and maybe it's early to say this now, but I mean, I mean, would you pick this if you had the choice? You, I mean, you don't have to say what you told me earlier, but. Um, I would choose between this and Nomadland are probably okay. easily two favorites with Mank as third. So you you do think while it might not stand a chance in terms of actually winning, you do think it's deserving of being up there and considered. Yeah. I, I feel like they just bungled the release of this. Why would you Yeah, I, I feel like if this I came you know what's like funny? I didn't in like on either like a p- premium VOD or something like that, like yeah. I feel like they would have a really good chance. Like, like this is the type of thing, I guess, I guess, I feel like this is the type of thing that could easily have gotten more traction if they had just released it differently. Yeah. But I feel like this is the movie that everyone says, like, oh, like this movie doesn't exist, but it's getting nominated. But it's like actually like easily one of the best in this year's slate. Fair. All right. Well, let's give our final review. I know we didn't we didn't hit any like negative points. Um if you guys just want to give a little bit more, if you want to talk about that in your final thing um, or whatever you want to say, it's your time slot, not mine. Um, I'm just going to go first and say, you know, I, I, this movie was really impactful for me. I, there was many times where I, I was not able to sit and still and very much take it all in. Um, it's also a movie that I would say could benefit from a rewatch but don't think I will rewatch because it's a lot to be honest like I just it's a lot to sit through um and it's not a knock against the movie it's just a powerful movie and you know I I I think a lot of what I'm going to say for my rating is nothing more than just based on how I feel I can't really put into words why it's not you know higher or lower um, I really enjoy the performances by Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman. I thought Hopkins was my favorite. Um, I thought I, I really like, I, I was saddened a lot. Um, and overall, I mean, this, this movie was just, it was beautiful. And because of that, uh, four stars. 
Yeah, I'm just going to touch a little more on their performances and why I really like them, uh, namely because they were theatrical and not in the, I think, one night in Miami sense, theatrical as in showy, but theatrical as in incredibly naturalistic, as in what you are taught to do when you are a stage actor. It, these were performances that with just tiny, tiny tweaks would be perfect for the stage. And they're complemented very well by uh, similarly naturalistic dialogue, uh, which we really see less and less of these days. So I was really refreshed, not only by the structure and the playing with time, but how theatrical this felt in a grounded way and bringing me back to, I don't know, I think a lot of plays and movies that got me really interested in the visual storytelling in the first place. So I, that's something that I'll definitely uh, take away from this and, and hold on to. And I give the father three and a half stars. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I'm just mainly just so impressed that this is Zeller's debut and that it is one of the few movies that I feel like showed me something this year, at least formally or like aesthetically that I feel like I haven't seen before. Um, it, it truly, like I said, it feels fresh and it, it truly does. It's like a new way of seeing this type of movie that I think is very powerful and very effective and very cinematic. And for that, I am, um, yeah, I said it like very, very impressed and I respect everything this, this movie is doing a lot. And with that, I am giving the father three and a half stars. All right. Well, it is time boys for our last Coen brothers film. For now, um, Eric, would you do the honors of introducing Inside Lewin Davis? Well, maybe I should just rewind the tapes and um, play what I said in our very first episode. Um, I have no clue what I said on my very first episode at this point, to be honest. Um, but Inside Lewin Davis uh, is about the titular Lewin Davis, played by Oscar Isaac who is a struggling folk singer who lives in 60s Greenwich Village. Um, and the movie is essentially an odyssey of sorts of his as he drifts around New York and drifts around the country trying to uh, find gigs for his music career as well as grieve the loss of his former partner, um, Mikey. Um, along the way, he has to grapple with the character played by Carrie Mulligan, whose name is Jean, who he has, um, who he is about to have a child with outside of wedlock and is trying to pay for her abortion. Um, and Jean is also married to Justin Timberlake. Um, and yeah, as he drifts from house to house, we get this cyclical Greek tragedy of sorts 
of a man who treats music as this holy truth for him to express his pain and inner emotion, but can't seem to find that same acceptance to allow him to live out that truth as a way of sustaining himself. And it's about this tragic struggle between this cathartic expression of the self versus the need to compromise. Um, I've, I probably spoke a bit about this on the first episode, but this has been like, this was a very formative movie for me and it was interesting to revisit again. So I'm excited to talk about it. I just need to confirm something here. I need to confirm that Oscar Isaac was not nominated for an Oscar for this performance. No, but it was, I don't think he was, but this was his breakout role. I mean, let me check. He was not. He was not. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. That year, it was 12 Years a Slave. Um, I forget how to say his name, if someone can tell me. Matthew McConaughey? No, not, no Matthew McConaughey won for Dallas Buyers Club. Oh, Christian Bale, American that. Hustle, Bruce Dern, Nebraska, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Wolf of Wall Street. I, oh, this is hard for me because I'm not only the biggest Matthew McConaughey fanboy, but I have been recently inducted into the fanboy club of Oscar Isaac. And I just, I don't know. I, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. And I want to spend a good chunk talking about it, uh, about him, because I mean, it's the movies about him. And I think what makes this movie to me, the best Coen brothers film is that is his performance. I think it just carries it so much. And I think he, I mean, I, 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 I just don't know how he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for this um, is all I'm going to say. Um, probably some, you know, some logistics around. I, I don't know. I, I, all I'm saying is that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like it, I, I've seen pretty much every one of those movies that were nominated. And uh, yes, I, I love Matthew McConaughey. I love Dallas Buyers Club, but Oscar Isaac made this movie like he just did. He, he, he took it to a different level and brought out a character that is a very common trope in Coen Brothers film. You know, we, we've talked about it dozens of times now, a guy down on his luck, you know, the world, you know, thrown against the wall by the Coen Brothers um, or just by life. And none of them in the past to, to me gives the type a performance and feeling that Oscar Isaac does. I mean, it's it's the, the sensation. One, beautiful voice. I have to say that. Didn't realize till after the movie that almost every person in the film did their own singing. Um, there was so, one. So there was one moment that apparently wasn't full singing, and that was actually by someone else. So wait, Oscar wait, Isaac. Wait. Um, it was something with Justin Timberlake when they were when he was singing Uh-oh. outer space. This movie is just god, we, I, I, I wanted to talk about this so bad, but I, I just have to, I have to keep going on this ride roller coaster of, of Oscar Isaac because I mean, god, I, I don't know, I really want to hear your guys' opinion on this. I mean, I know. 
like it's good. I just it's just great. I I just don't think I think there's very few performances in my opinion that have actually made me feel this way. And it was such small, subtle things. And, you know, specifically a lot of the moments when he was singing and then after he was singing in some of the like reactions he had, the, the one at the at the dinner party. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not going to keep talking. I want to hear your guys' opinion. But I mean, you know, honestly, Zach, I didn't think he was very good. Are you April Fools? Oh. April Fools. <laughs> April Fools. <laughs> It's, it's April first somewhere. April, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> you got uh, me. No, I he, he was terrific, and but I think he did really well. He took this character, which, as written, could be likable, could be unlikable. It has a range, I think, if you're just basing it purely on the script. And he makes the bold choice to play it more on the unlikable side. Uh, his character, not that you can't sympathize with his journey, but just him as a person, his, his raw actions and speech, I think, are objectively unlikable a lot of the time. But I think because he does this, because he makes that choice and leans into the situations that he's placed in he it's almost like he he uses his hardships to explain uh his rougher actions uh and that kind of spins the whole thing around and makes you like him even more and makes you just realize that how wounded he is and then he sings without playing wounded and then he sings and that's when I think everything comes out. That's that's the great release that that demonstrates how much he's he's struggling. Where the rest of the movie, you kind of appreciate him for pretending not to struggle, pretending that everything's fine, as people so often do. And then the the catharsis comes during the songs, where he doesn't have to pretend, and then you don't have to pretend either. Yeah, uh, I sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Eric. Oh shoot! I was just gonna say he. Yeah, I I think the idea of him being unlikable is very very true. I think I I don't know. I I I feel I oftentimes feel very unqualified judging performances just because I don't have that background in me in terms of theater, but. I don't know. He strikes me as so. He called. He says he's tired in this movie and that weariness really shines through every single moment of this movie for me. Um, Zach talked about him being a one in the line of like Coen Brothers tropes. And I think what Isaac does that none of those other ones do is, is exactly that weariness, that idea that out of some desperation for his ability to achieve this catharsis, he trudges on, but He's so tired. And I don't think, I think that's a, an emotional chord to this type of trope that no other character in the Coen's filmography really has other, other than maybe Billy Bob Thornton and the man who wasn't there. But yeah, I think, I think his performance really does anchor this movie emotionally. And um, 
this movie is like one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies because it is the only, one of the only ones that makes me feel some sort of emotion. Um, so I would totally agree on the assessment of his performance and Eric, his singing. Quick, quick so question: good. Should he have won the Oscar? Should he have even been nominated? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know how much Oscars matter. We don't. We don't need to. We can appreciate it on its own. I'm just curious. It's just, it's just weird to me. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Um, yeah, I mean, we could, we could literally. I feel like this is a movie that we could talk about from a lot of angles for a long, for an entire episode, and even just going through his performance. But I think, it, it, I think we should bounce around a little bit. Um, there's, I think, a bunch of components to get to, um, and let's start with, um, let's start with the music. The music. Um, what did you what did you think about like how how does this there's a lot of singing in this movie like a lot um do you do you like it do you do you like all the music do you identify with some of it like what what is you know i i, I feel like hang me oh hang me <laughs> I, I maybe i'm wrong saying this but i feel like there's a potential there's a risk reward potential for a movie with this much music like that is based around musical performance like i feel like you know separate first of all you would you call this movie a musical no no interesting that it was nominated in the golden globes as musical slash comedy not drama so they also nominated <laughs> Minaria's like international feature this year. So yeah, like <laughs> well, I guess we don't have to respect that. Uh the Golden Globes. Either I, way, I, um it's a comedy. What? It's a comedy. High drinks with the cat. <laughs> um <laughs> dude, that cat. <laughs> Maybe we can just talk about the cat. Outer space. That song was so stupid, but just so great. I, I don't, I don't know. I loved all the music. Like um, when he finds out that his that his ex didn't actually go through with the abortion and has his son, is he has a son guys. who's like two years old and he's living in Akron, Ohio. Comedy. We missed a big opportunity today. Why? For our opening question, favorite movie in which a pop star actor comes in as a supporting role. Oh, <laughs> that's actually such a sad missed opportunity. Yeah, you're right. We should have done uh, that. Um, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I don't know how I felt about Justin Timberlake. Oh, he's so good. I mean, he's, in he's the good. I Is mean, it I, weird? I feel like there's this phenomenon. I feel like there's this phenomenon where famous, really famous actors playing supporting characters kind of takes me out of it a tiny bit for a fraction of a second. I don't know. I, I still, I think he did a great job and obviously he's got the voice for it. And I don't know. I, am I, am I weird in thinking that? I mean, I just feel like I saw him and I was like, oh, that's Justin Timberlake. You know, I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm just not as familiar with what I guess I, like I, I obviously know just I don't know Justin Timberlake, but I know yeah, I know oh, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> but I mean, he grew out his beard for this. I he did I look interesting with a beard. I like, someone where I think of him, and I can like very, very immediately see a face. Like I know what he looks like, but okay. 
You know what I mean? I don't know. It, it, it kind of stuck out to me. It, I didn't trust me. It did not affect my rating of the film, but it just. <laughs> I, I think I, I I'm in between you guys, but I think I, I lean closer to you, Zach. It, there there is definitely some cognitive dissonance. It's just like a tiny bit. It's not. I'm not saying it. It's just like a little bit of like, like. Tyrus? Tyrus, is that you? <laughs> and honestly, though, I was thinking about that. Uh, Eric, you, you talk about how he like grew out his beard for this, but I feel like he was, I feel like he was a lot more camouflaged in Pop Star. I feel like, he, I feel he, like he was in a fish costume. Yeah, <laughs> but even when he's like chopping the carrots, right? He he doesn't he doesn't feel as yeah. Like in in Inside Lou Davis, it was more like oh that's Justin. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I agree. I don't no, know why. Pop star like makes you look for the celebrity cameos. It it is like clearly saying like we have all of these celebrities sure, playing yeah, these parts. So, like you're actually part of the camera. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but like, I I, I, I like oh clearly that's a celebrity and clearly it's Justin Timberlake. You know? It just felt like, a I, little bit more. Like, I, I knew it's him, but in <laughs> in this one, it's more like oh yeah, oh. it's like a little out of place because it's a. You know, it's a very raw, like dramatic movie. I don't know. I, I'm just spitting. I, I like I said, didn't affect my rating. I just had to say it. Seeing him and then seeing him with a beard too. Honestly, if he didn't have a beard, I might have been less shocked. I might have been, oh, okay. And then like I, but you know, I was like, that's Justin Timberlake with a beard. <laughs> so I don't. Know. <laughs> honestly, I would have been less impacted if he came out in a fish costume. So, you know. <laughs> Wow. DJ Calvin at the end, like to say that's who that fish was. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, real talk, music. What do you guys? Any opinions? Any anything you want to say um, about the music? Um, I mean, the music is what drew me to this movie in the first place. I feel like yeah. the first wave of movies that I that really got me into movies were sort of music related because that's like what my primary interest was at that point. Like. Things like La La Land, Lewin Davis. Um, those are probably the two big ones. I, I, you could be even put like Umbrellas of Cherbourg in there. Same sort of deal. Um, I would even say like In the Mood for Love is like a very musical movie. Um, and it's such pure, like almost maximalist expression in this movie, especially within such a gray gray like brown like not muddy but like sort of smothered aesthetic that this movie exists in um and I yeah like every single song in this movie I absolutely love and pretty much know by heart I like this this viewing I was like I I have a lot of this portions of this movie memorized can I ask you a question um do you think this can go to both of you I mean honestly all three of us I would say of the three of us here I'm the least musician. I spent a lot, you know, I, I, we all three of us have spent time in music one way or another. Um, I'd say Eric is very, you know, obviously you still play today. Do you connect? Not that Caleb doesn't, whatever. I'm, this is to both of you, this is to anyone. Do you think you connect more with this film as a musician? Do you think there's a, a, an extra layer there that maybe hits you a little bit harder? Do you relate to any of the theme? I mean, like, it, I, I don't know. I, I was just wondering if if maybe you connected with it more as an artist yourself. I think the, I think I said in our first episode that this is one of the first movies that really, to me, displayed some of that like catharsis of what it can feel like to play music. I was obviously like also closeted back then. I, 
I consider myself pretty shy. So I guess in that sense, that's always something that's really, really drawn me to this specific movie. I feel like I can think of very few other movies that feel that, that to me, like convey as much the emotion of what it means and what it feels like to play music and really like be super into it. Uh, I, there are very few other movies that have that same feeling as that than this one. Yeah, I think what's special about Lewin Davis is that it doesn't even need to be restricted to uh, musicians. I think any artist can uh, can relate to the growing sense of of failure and and desperation and just compare struggle just dominating success uh and so i think in that sense i i i connected to it um but i think it 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 has a more universal feeling i think than most movies about artists like for, for example la la land my favorite uh my favorite movie you know that that follows aspiring artists i felt like i connected uh to to emma stone's mia as an actor and to ryan gosling sebastian as as a pianist but i think it was very connected to those specific uh occupations uh that i happened to to have some history with uh which i think made made the movie a lot more impactful for me uh but in lewin davis i think it really could be anything it's it's broad enough to encompass any art but you know specific enough to really hit you deep in your emotions i mean i agree i uh we're gonna say her Oh no, I, I was just gonna say the songs also get sadder and sadder as they go along. I think like they do. every song is good, but I think the songs get progressively better and better and more impactful as this movie goes on. Like generally, I think of the the most devastating thing as the death of Queen Jane. That's the most devastating song most of the times I watch it. But this time, the Shoals of Herring really got me. Like, and I yeah. think that's one of my favorites from this from the movie. Now, I was just gonna ask, um, you know, just because I think. Uh, you know, I want to have fun with this too. You know, what, what, what was, um, what would you say was your favorite scene in the movie? But uh, everyone. Death of Queen Jen. Always. That's your, that's your favorite scene. What, what about that scene? Is it just the song? Is it the, the performing for like an audition type thing? And the, the rege- like, what, what about that scene does it for you? I mean, it's that he's come all this way. We've seen him go through so much. And then it's also that ending, just like how curt and how concise Bud Grossman's response is. Just like, I don't see the money here after this beautiful and such like such a sad song. I also now sort of regret not saying the shows of Herring because seeing him come back and confront this aspect of his past that he's been sort of ignoring in his father. Um really hit harder this time than I remembered. So maybe I'll have to rethink that. But those are those are easily my two favorite two favorite scenes. Don't hold me to this because this is just off the top of my head, but 
one scene that really got me was near the end when Lewin has to return to the Gorefine's apartment and apologize for making a scene last time he was there and again ask to sleep on their couch just horribly painful uh things to do that any person with any other choice would avoid but he's so trapped that he has to go back and and just face this enormously uncomfortable situation just made me uh, quite sad and then when he when he wakes up oh my mm -hmm. god yeah i think from that from that scene to the end when he just is like repeating the things that you know happened to him at at the beginning and i don't know i i was prepared for for the movie to return to to the beginning to show that you know no matter what he can't make progress i i intuited that would be a, a major component but that didn't stop uh my very strong reaction to to watching these events play out again and in a, in a <laughs> quite hopeless manner i mean another thing that destroys me is when speaking of the gore finds when he's playing at dinner and then oh shoot what is the woman's name what is the woman's oh, name gosh i forgot you know i'm bad with names lily yeah when when she starts singing mikey's part and you just like see his face and he goes like what are you doing that just like destroys me it's so sad yeah i was gonna say that was my favorite scene probably um that as well as i enjoyed i actually really enjoyed his interactions with carrie mulligan um his character uh gene was it you i worry i think there was something so you know they they obviously have a history and and obviously a more recent sexual history and you can tell that like there's this there's this anger but also frustration that she has with him and the way he acts with her is just like you know, and this is a lot to say about his character, you know, like he's, it's so weird because he's an asshole and he's kind of in some ways an unlikable character, but something about Oscar Isaac's performance makes you, and, 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 and Caleb touched on this pretty, uh, uh, greatly just, it, it, I don't know. I definitely pitied him a little bit. I felt a little bad for him at times. Like he's not the shittiest person in the world. And, and, and I, I felt like this, the relationship, the scenes between him and Gene, just kind of like they made me just kind of like sad about this like like he I don't know there's just so many complex emotions there and I think he's feeling both guilt and both frustration and I mean I I I think that this film doesn't have a dull moment for me where I'm not learning something about Isaac uh, about Lewin Davis I feel like um, at all times, some some piece of the puzzle that I, even now I still cannot piece together is being added. So, I, yeah, I, I, and I would say you know, those are some of my favorite scenes. I, I wanted to, Kale brought it up and I wanted to touch on it. What do you guys, let's talk about the ending or beginning or ending, <laughs> the ending and beginning. Um, what is it, you know, you know, we're getting more, we're getting less, 
away from the review territory and more into the you know critical side of things but what does that mean to you what does that represent and like what did you like it um you know Caleb touched on it a little bit but I want to know did it work for you what worked for you but I I I mean the the beginning and end were very very mirrored um with more clarity I think added to the ending you know I think for for a moment I was convinced that they were the same same period and I yeah go with that I, I don't know what 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 worked for you there I think the conceit itself just works really well it feels like a very Cohen'sy thing just like so, like it's so structured but in this case it I don't know this is one of the best instances of it for me it feels fairly natural partially because of what Caleb said before and that we can sort of see it coming um and I mean I, I just find it devastating I think hang me oh hang he sings hang me oh hang me again right I, I think it's and then one more going through song. what he's gone through and seeing it cycled through again um I think finding out um the extent of Gene's dedication towards him is also really devastating um I I actually do have a question what is everyone's thoughts on Bob Dylan coming in at the end uh yeah. I thought about I don't know Bob Dylan well enough for me I don't, to have, I don't either for that to have much of an effect on my experience but I that is something that's always interested in me that they end up placing this in like a very very specific time and place and context well yeah at the time where this movie is set Bob Dylan is not yet Bob Dylan uh and so it you know it just shows that he's he's right next to everything that he wants to be before he can realize it before anybody can realize it and you know shows it 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 shows that it just as well could have been him and yet it was always inevitable that he ends up in the same place he started and And it's always there's never any chance even though it feels like it, it could just as easily have been him in that chair going on to be the huge success actually it was always inevitably going to be him outside beat up on the ground oh yeah i think i I think there's wow (laughs) i think there's also to me i like it because i think it's a contrast to the the scenes uh the scenes with john goodman's character uh, where you have the somewhat successful what uh, like jazz artists and then the expiring actor quiet driver I have a feeling if I was going to take a stab at things that is probably your both of yours least favorite part of the film uh, just because it I think it does feel a little out of place I don't know maybe I'm wrong maybe maybe you you like it um, but I I I see it as the reason I actually liked those scenes more after I finished the entire film was that I thought of them as, you know, the Bob, you know, Bob Dylan, like Caleb, everything he just said was what I was thinking in terms of like, you know, this is not who he is and he kind of doesn't, you know, it could have been him, but inevitably won't be. It's almost like there's the, the other, those other two guys are also, you know, they're kind of who he could be, but chooses not to be like, you know, in some respect of like how like the 
how he went about his career, how he is going about his career. I think he both aspires to be something like the, like Bob Dylan, but also, and doesn't want to be, I don't know. I, I, I have this interesting idea in my head of these contrary characters that are around him that kind of express not necessarily his satisfaction with being trapped, but just the reality that he isn't going to change who he is. I don't know. Am I, am I correct in saying that, that, that might be your two, both of yours, maybe least favorite part of the film. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me ask, let me ask why uh, I'm kind of curious. Uh, do you know why, or does it just to you not feel There's, right? Like, the characters are such nothings to me. I've, it's always been the movie, the part of the movie that I've struggled the most with. And mm-hmm. I think I've always written it off as like those two characters being some sort of projection of Oscar Isaac's like Lewin Davis's like brain, like self-doubt, wondering like in the in like the form of john goodman poking him saying that like oh the way mikey um died by suicide is like not correct some some aspect of this idea that he is never going to like he is somehow no matter what he's doing and no matter how authentic and vulnerable he's being going about everything wrong but it it's totally so different from the rest of the movie for me from me that's from for me and i think that's what puts me off um, the way they sort of also just disappear after like 20 minutes is also really strange to me. Um, but John Goodman's character in, in particular, I really just, it just does not fit. I don't find him or is it Garrett Hedlund? That's the mm-hmm. other one. I don't find either of them very compelling as personalities. They're not really characters. They don't really say or do much of note that actually really feels like it informs Lewin Davis for me. It's just like 20 minutes of having to watch John Goodman be like unpleasant, you know? Yeah, I think this is the the rare Cohen's movie that uh, focuses very intently on one character. And I hate that. I mean, I hate a strong word. I, I, I don't like how they move that focus off of Lewin Davis for for that period of time it just there's nobody in that car who's more interesting who's a more compelling character than Lewin Davis so I don't understand the reasoning behind making that shift I think the Coens love to let John Goodman loose and it was just not necessary here it was it was unwarranted and comparatively to the rest of the movie uninteresting um it would have been better if he had just gone on a road trip on his own chicago yeah yeah yeah, the one thing uh, maybe on the contrary i think the one thing that kind of saves it from being like what the hell is this is that it gives it it fits within the plot Mm -hmm. at least like you understand like if he has to get to chicago it's going to be hard for him to do it by himself uh you know and it's it's set up you know it's it's al cody's friend and there's so there's reason for him to be there i just the act of being there as written is almost unforgivable given uh the excellence of the rest of the movie yeah it's definitely the most puzzling to me too and i would i would love to pick the brain and wonder why it is how it is um 
but I, I had a feeling I was just like, I, I have a feeling if the, if they if there was one part of this film that neither, you know, maybe I'm just getting to know you guys better um, as, as uh, film uh, critics, but either way, I had a feeling. <sighs> well, gosh, I, we, we, we could talk about this movie forever, but I think it's probably time that we, uh, we wrap up a little bit. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Anything else of note that we should mention before? Um. Yeah, I'll just before before we wrap up, I'll I'll bring up one thing that uh, I think really made this movie great to me, uh, especially within the Cohen's filmography, is that this one felt more real. Uh, I think most or a lot of Cohen movies, uh, either you can tell that they're set in a world that is different from ours. It's it's not the real world like Barton Fink, the man who wasn't there. I think it's just not set uh, in, in an existence that we are in. And then there are other movies that maybe they are, but the plots are so go so haywire that you do, you have still have a hard time believing it's, it's in our world, even when there are signs that point to the fact that it might be such as, blood simple or burn after reading um this one just felt like it was set in the real world combine that with the fact that it focuses on one character and i think that's why this is my favorite coen brothers movie putting those two forces together uh i think allows for the most the biggest emotional charge in the movie or in, in movies for, for me. And I think the Coens don't always go for this huge, huge emotional upheaval, but when they do, it's usually layered behind genre or plot or just like allegory. Yeah. Allegory moving parts. But here I think most of it is, is stripped bare and, it allows the, the the easiest access to 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 one's heart, and I'm I'm very appreciative that they decided to to just let go of of the fancy stuff for the most part uh, and focus on the character and the emotion. The absurdism works too, like mm-hmm. outer space. Like it all feels like it's working towards this realism and this like emotional intensity of Oscar Isaac's situation and his inability to compromise that I think in some ways also very, very closely tied to his desire not to move on from this death of a partner um, and trying to not tarnish the memory of their artistic relationship um i also think that many of the other like the other performances in the gaslight bar are really funny but they're also like unironically i enjoy them too the um the, the, court, Troy, the, the, the his song and the the old lady with the, the vertical, <laughs> yeah. vertical harp the i i think those are really funny and they totally work I, yeah 
I even even I think the the Cohen's the the classic Cohen's plot plotting you know the the Shakespearean stuff works too. Uh, for example, um, you know he finds out Jean is pregnant, needs to get an abortion, needs money for that, so he agrees that he won't get royalties for for please Mr. Kennedy. Then he goes to the abortion clinic, finds out it's it's free because uh, last time is the last time he was there. It never happened. So now he has this extra money, ends up using it to pay his military dues. And then he finds out that his license got thrown out. So he can't join the military. So he has no money. Uh, and then he finds out that the song is going to pay massive royalties. Right. So he gained nothing but lost huge. And that's that is the classic Cohen's, you know, spiraling until you have nothing. But here it really works because it just funnels you into this sense that. It's so he can't get anywhere. It's so, so no matter what he does. How do you feel about the fact that he doesn't? I, I, I'm kind of interested. The part that keeps coming out to me is the scene when he's driving back to New York with the, the guy that picked him up on the road and he sees the Akron, Ohio sign. And there's that, you know, the moment you can tell there's this, this indecision in him and he ultimately decides not to go. Do you, what do you think about that? You know, and what does that say about him? What does it say about, you know, like, do you, I don't know. I mean. It's, it's his commitment. You know, I, I talked about this movie as like a ghost story. And I think like that comes out in scenes like the gore finds, but I think it comes out in scenes like this too. Like he has, so much burden not only on himself but I, I think he really feels like he's carrying the burden of like he's hopes and dreams on him as well and he is obviously representative of this entire group of like nameless people who sort of get turned out by the music industry and I think that comes down to going back to Akron is just another form of compromise like he can go find this girl who has his child and that is one way out of his his cycle, just as joining a group with Bud Gro joining one of Bud Grossman's groups was, or going to the military, even like getting royalties on that song that he doesn't really like it was like, it's just one another series of choices of his dedication and his desperation to really want to be able to explore his catharsis and express his emotions through music and his desire to truly be able to do that like unhindered, unhindered. So do, you, do you think this movie is hopeless like do you think he do you think he's hopeless yeah i think so for sure so that's a it's a sad it's a sad truth but maybe not true in the real world at least we'd like to think so. All right, let's give our final reviews. Um, this is also my favorite Coen Brothers film that I've seen uh, of the eight that I have now seen. Um, it is very powerful. And I could talk all day about Oscar Isaac's performance. I remember a few years ago, which seems like yesterday, it was a small freshman in college and Eric Zhu was like, you know, Oscar Isaac's pretty good. And I'm like, I haven't really seen him in much. And he's like, dude, I think he's one of the best actors today. And here I am two years later 
And I now can tell Eric Zhu that he was right. Uh, that was many years ago. Um, inevitable. <laughs> it was inevitable. It was inevitable. He was always going to be right. Um, yeah, gosh. I mean, maybe I'll just leave it at the fact that this movie has a cat in it. So five stars. Um, there is a point, maybe several points in this movie where I questioned myself and I said, do I hate this? Because there are so many bad things that kept happening to Lewin Davis. Um, and then after the movie, I, I remarked to Eric that I said, man, this is one of the saddest movies I've ever seen. But ultimately the the humanity of it won out over the 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 pure sadness and yeah i was just able to find solace in lewin davis's struggle where he only felt struggle so fortunately he's the fictional character and i'm not and i give inside lewin davis four stars yeah, I think the reason this movie isn't miserablest is because you see how powerful his singing is and what it means to him and the way that it really keeps him going. Um, oh my God. Caleb at the beginning of the podcast asked me if I was really going to let Zach give a higher score for this movie than I am. <laughs> uh, I mean, I... Yeah, this is a movie that will always mean a lot. Eric Zhu, five and a half star. <laughs> and I don't know. I The John Goodman section really felt even more jarring this time around. It's a section of the movie that I always forget about. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll always remember this movie. So we'll see what happens in the future. But oh, it's hard to get this one out. I gave it four and a half stars. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I will always remember that Eric Sue is the original fanboy of Inside Loon Davis and I'm gave, still me, a fanboy. Exactly. gave, gave, gave me the, the honor. No, no. He gave me the honor. My five star is different than Eric's five star. It's very different. Um, it does not mean that uh, I am the biggest fan. It just means that Eric knows how to give me good recommendations. Wow, Caleb too. Wait, right? you, do you owe me money? Do you owe me money? <laughs> Why? Didn't we say that the like if we recommended a movie to you and you gave it five, you gave it five <laughs> stars? Oh yeah, you're right. The first, <laughs> was it the first? <laughs> when did that, so that bet started in the fall, right? Yeah, because I was saying, technically Caleb's given me a recommendation for a five-star film, which was, um, um, Someone help me. My mind's blanking right now. One of the before's. Light of my life. Yes, which is light of light of my life. I, well, the before's was both of you. That doesn't really count. Light of my life was. I mean, directly. I'll take it. I'll take it. But I, you are right. I did say. Uh, <laughs> Next one. Zach's gonna go. Well, how about Eric, when Eric I plan this out because he knows that Zach's gonna lower his rating now. So then Eric. No. Gonna... <laughs> I'm gonna lower it down. Uh, I will. I'll buy... brothers couldn't have plotted it better themselves. I will, uh, I will, when we finally see each other in the fall, I will buy you both dinner as a token of my appreciation for the two five-star movies that I've been given. 
the more recent one by Eric Zhu. But uh, that is true. I forgot about That's that. More recent one. <laughs> we'll go out. We'll go out. You know, we'll, we'll, more now, <laughs> uh, between now and now. I can't believe I'm saying this. We'll go out. We'll get dinner. We'll see a movie. Like, oh my gosh, this is hopefully the new world again. Memoria, anyone? <laughs> get some. Get some. Uh, some time at the Lemley or the new AMC building that's now there. ArcLight. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't wait guys. Boys. I'm so excited for, for the life to get somewhat back to normal. Get those vaccines people. That's our shout out to end the, the end the podcast. Pfizer, sponsor us. <laughs> Johnson and Johnson, please listen to our podcast and sponsor us. Well, it's been fun. Thank you guys for joining us and we will see you next time.